Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? You don't have to have family members that get sick or be sick yourself to empathise with the person in front of you. You just have to want to empathise with the person in front of you, actually connect with them on a level above and beyond your own knowledge. Having experienced my fair share of disillusionment with our medical system, I've often wondered, what if the doctors that were treating me had gone through this? Would they be more empathetic, more understanding of my concerns and my feelings about the treatment? But to be honest, that's as far as my thinking went. Whilst frustrated with the apparent lack of empathy in the medical fraternity, I didn't feel passionate enough about it to throw in my day job and retrain as a doctor to fight this pandemic from within. I mean, how crazy would that be, right? And yet, that's exactly the path that my guest today has taken. Meet Ben Bravery. Originally a zoologist and science commentator, Ben worked for the Australian and Chinese governments before being diagnosed with stage 3 colorectal cancer at age 28. After undergoing 18 months of cancer treatment, Ben decided on a career change. He became a doctor in 2018 and is now undertaking specialty training in psychiatry. Ben volunteers, advocates, writes and speaks about colorectal cancer, living with cancer and cancer in young adults. But what's most interesting to me is that he's also talking about, and shining a light on, the dark arts of medicine and medical education, and is committed to advocating for change in Australia's healthcare system. His book, The Patient Doctor, is a powerful and inspiring story, you all need to read this, trust me, of his life-changing decision to become a doctor and enact change for the better within the health system. As a scientist, Ben understood his illness and treatment, but this in no way prepared him for what it would really be like to be a patient. Let's dive in. Ben Bravery, I cannot tell you how excited I am to be sitting here with you today. Thank you for coming on the One Question Podcast. No, thank you for having me, Michelle. It's rarely I get to sit down with another ex-cancer patient and bitch about the medical system, (laughs) so I'm excited. Me too. (laughs) Just setting the tone. (laughs) But if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, Ben, what would it be? It would be what patients and doctors want from that relationship. What patients and doctors want from that relationship. Okay, define that more for me. You know, as you alluded to, I have had cancer. I had bowel cancer when I was 28 years old and that kind of came about in the usual way that these things do. It slowly evolved over time and a lot of the bowel cancer symptoms are non-specific and vague and you can kind of explain them away using lots of other things like, you know, dodgy restaurants and leftover food you probably should have warmed up for longer in the microwave. But, you know, these things got too hard to explain eventually. Then I started bleeding But I put all this into Google and worked out that I had hemorrhoids. Then I got really sick and lost weight, grew pale, started fainting, got night sweats, 
and was diagnosed with a nasty bowel tumor in a part of the colon called the sigmoid. It was a whirlwind because I'd never really been sick before and I was really sick now. There was a race to go and look for other cancer because people my age who tend to present with bowel cancer tend to do later. So it tends to be stage three and four. Luckily, I just had the one tumor, but it was complicated. It stretched across two parts of bowel and it was up, you know, almost kissing the bladder and it had wrapped around some of my, you know, man equipment. So it was tricky and it ended up needing about 18 months of treatment, which was chemo, radiation therapy and a couple of surgeries. And I ended up had to have a bag for a year and then I got blood clots in the lungs after the end of chemo. Lots and lots of complications. But I was spat out at the end of that and tried to go back to my old world. And I decided on reflection that I probably wanted to go back into healthcare, but this time as a doctor, not as a patient. I had been a zoologist, right? I'd studied wildlife. This was quite the pivot. I wanted to do it because I wanted to give back to the system that had saved me. But I also wanted to jig a few things along the way. There was a few things about healthcare that I thought where it had lost its purpose. I call myself the patient doctor because I learnt medicine having been sick. I am a patient with a medical degree. I'm a patient that sometimes gets to wear a stethoscope. I was a patient first and I always will be. But now I'm on the other side. I'm a clinician. I'm five years out of med school. I'm a doctor. I see people every day. I'm specialty training. And I feel the tension now. You know, the tension that I was very quick to judge as a patient, I now feel as a doctor. I wrote a book last year called The Patient Doctor because I wanted these sides to come together. I wanted these sides to better understand each other because what shocked me when I crossed over, Michelle, was that a lot of the things that I'd noticed and and pissed me off as a patient were seeded and bedded in the foundation of medical education and the way we incentivize and train doctors. And then a lot of the frustrations doctors held were similar to the ones that patient held. And I, I just thought, this is so bizarre. We've got a system here where both sides are unhappy and both sides need to do a better job of talking to each other about that. Yeah, fascinating. God, there's so much to unpack in all that. Firstly, I get that you want to make a difference, but how do you think about the fact of going back to school at your age and, you know, it's not like a, you know, an MBA or a PhD, you know, it's a full-fledged, you know, another 10 years of study. And especially, I don't know, having gone through cancer myself, to me, it was like, you know, life is short. I'm just going to have fun. I'm like, there's no way in hell you would have got me back into university. (laughs) I mean, I just find that fascinating. Why on earth you would have thought to do that? (laughs) I know it's weird. I I do. I fully appreciate that. And And because my time did have extra meaning, as you know, and appreciate and feel in your bones, I just felt I had to do something really different with it. The weirdest part about that is that as a zoologist, I really didn't like people because people were the enemy. They were the ones cutting down forests and building zoos and killing animals. You know, I didn't have a lot of empathy for humans, but I've crossed over into this field which is grounded in empathy and connection with each other. It was a huge decision, yeah, to retrain, huge decision. I went back to med school at 32. You would have been by far the oldest in school, I imagine. They call you the granddad. <laughs> 
my, my, my group did call me grandpa, which was very embarrassing. And I was the classic mature age student, you know, up the front with a notepad, not a MacBook. Ben, you say you didn't like, you didn't, you didn't like people, which is interesting. And because one of the things that you talk about in your book, I mean, your book is fabulous. It is an amazing read. And there were so many things I'm just nodding away going, yeah, like all the way through. One of those elements was around your point about humanity. And you said about when you were approaching medical graduation, you talk about med school changing you and you'd become anxious and struggled to hang on to your humanity. And, you know, I'd really be interested to hear more about that period of your life. And, you know, you said becoming a doctor should not come at a cost to our humanity. One of the challenges I guess we have, and a lot of the time people describe it as bedside manner, you know, when you meet a doctor and you're like, well, they're a bit of a brainiac and we kind of make allowances for people that are super smart in normal society, you know, that they may not have those kind of normal elements of dealing with everyday situations or or, uh, navigating, you know, social situations quite the same. But we make allowances for doctors. But to me, that was one of the things that probably pissed me off the most, you know, is that lack of humanity. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, good, good observation. I think most people have at least one story, if not a bunch of them, where they leave a doctor's office frustrated or they get discharged from hospital, not quite understanding or comfortable with what's happened. Um, Sometimes it's much worse than that. I think what shocked me about med school was who they let in. Now, I know that sounds weird, but, but, you know, you've selected a bunch of people that are very good at a particular skill. And the skill is sitting alone and memorizing things. That's the skill. And then you get them to sit an exam which tests that skill and then you let them in and you say, great, you, you're going to now be healers. You know, you've got to learn lots to be a doctor. You've got to have a certain, you know, smart about you, a certain intelligence, but it is not rocket science, let me stress. And that's okay if you let those people in and then you compensate for what being very good at that particular skill means. It means that there's likely to be deficits in other parts of their life. They're not going to have a broad portfolio of hobbies and interests on average. They're not going to have huge social groups. They're not going to come from families with chronic disease, from postcodes where it's hard to get a GP. They're usually from very good schools, from families of professionals with private health insurance who don't have direct experience of chronic and major illness. Now, again, that's okay if at medical school you go and teach that stuff. And that's what shocked me. It's not there. So it's almost like the assumption is because you're a person and you've made it into what is essentially a person-centered service industry that you'll just grow all the other stuff that's needed. And we know every year when the complaints data comes out at a state level or a national level, It's communication over and over again. It's top three. People complain about this all the time and it's just not taught well. I saw my colleagues, those that started off with empathy and compassion and kindness and really caring about the patient as a person, I saw it atrophy because it's a competitive, hostile teaching environment and those human things are not rewarded. There's no prize for that. It's an anatomy prize. It's a pharmacology prize. It's a pathology prize. You know what I mean? There's no compassion prize at the end of the war. There's no leadership, mentorship, colleagueship, validation, communication, empathy award. 
It's all the traditional stuff because we've expected doctors to know a lot about the human body and illness. And they have to, of course, but that's not the job. That's only half the job, right? And, and we're told tokenistically, yes, medicine's an art based on a science, but the art is almost absent. And to me, the big loss was that patients can teach us that art. They can play that role at med school, but they're largely ignored. And then it sets up this power difference, the well and the unwell. When you think about it, it's a really interesting relationship, right? Like to be my best as a doctor, I need people to be sick. I need them to have a vulnerability or a deficit or to need something from me. It's symbiotic. It's deeply symbiotic. It's mutual. And yet we, all we do is we reinforce the differences at med school and we don't share the similarities. Golly, the way you describe it is amazing. I've never heard anyone talk about this that way. And there are so many things that come up for me about, you know, I've been in hospital many times, unfortunately, and not only for myself, but obviously for family members as well. There's so many things that need to change. And I think that's part of your point. And you sort of had said to me previously that you felt that you couldn't really make the change until you became within the system doctors don't often listen to anyone else other than other doctors. So you had to become a doctor. And now that you've kind of come through that and you are through the other side, are you able to really make the change or, you know, even beginning to make the change that you wished or that you thought and hoped you could? Or is a system that fundamentally broken? So the thing to say about the healthcare system, it's a beautiful, complicated thing. It's complex in the sense that it's got thousands of moving parts and it's got resource constraints and there are lots of pressures on it and demand now is higher than it's ever been, right? And you can't not have a conversation with system pressures without talking about the pandemic and the pandemic has really just blown open a lot of the holes and wounds that were already there. As a junior, so I'm a junior doctor and you're a junior doctor for like somewhere between five and 12 years, depending on the amount of training. Oh, so I spent four years at med school and I'm five years out and I've got three years to go. So I think what am I able to do on a day-to-day basis? I'm able to practice with purpose. I'm able to ground myself in the patient experience, treat every encounter with the respect and sensitivity it deserves. But what writing the book opened up a door to a lot of other parts of healthcare. And what I realized is first of all, what I'm saying is not new, right? I'm just saying it with a slightly different mask on and that mask is a cancer patient who became a doctor. Nurses in particular have been saying what I'm saying for about 40 years. (laughs) So there's an army out there already of people trying to change it, but change is hard. You know that, I know that, the system knows that. Everybody's chipping away at their little piece though. And the pandemic has really accelerated a lot of those changes. People are getting true to the concept of patient-centeredness. Patient-centered care is something, there are posters of it everywhere, but it's rarely done. And I think a lot of people are actually starting to get serious about that. You know, we're involving patients in co-design from the ground up. We're involving them in research in more sophisticated ways. They're speaking at conferences. They're attending multidisciplinary meetings. They're in medical schools in a way that they weren't before. There's lots and lots of change. I mean, my voice is just one of many, right? And I'm hoping to agitate. Now, the big thing I can do as a junior doctor, until Michelle, I have that power that senior doctors get at the top of the hierarchy where I can, with a stroke of a pen, make huge changes. I've got to model the type of healthcare that I believe in. 
but it's hard because I get hungry and I get tired and we're doing this in the middle of a day and I'm starting work at 10 o'clock tonight, right? Like I got night shifts. I have a kid at home. I'm trying to be the best husband I can. And acknowledging that it is a person delivering healthcare and we are prone to the same stresses as everybody else. So I don't always nail it. But what I do want to see is that the system supports me as best it can to be the kind of healer I want to be and not make that almost, you know, a bonus or an add-on. It should be engineered for that. It should not be a nice to have. And so how do you change it? I mean, one of the things I found quite confronting as well reading in your book is about the bullying and, you know, how that's quite innate within the system and the way that you doctors are trained. How do you change that now from someone coming in, you know, first year med school to not be exposed or experience that like you went through? Because it sounded pretty horrific. Mm. The word bullying gets thrown around a lot. I mean, in its, it, its actual definition is kind of systematic, sustained negative behavior based on humiliation, right? And exposing vulnerability. So I'd seen lots of what we call inappropriate behavior in healthcare. You know, the, the slightly dysregulated doctor or nurse, the snappy physiotherapist. I'd seen, you know, eye rolling and kind of terrible education, but hadn't really been bullied until this one time in, in fourth year. And I'm not alone. The last survey of junior doctors that's done every year now, which is excellent, because that's the first thing is we've got to measure it so that we weren't asking junior doctors what things were like. And now we are. We've done it for about five years. And the last time they did it, you know, they got 23,000 junior doctors to complete a survey. And that's half of all junior doctors. Confidentially, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. All very confidential and anonymous. And one third had seen bullying or harassment. And unfortunately, we have got to acknowledge that the main person doing that bullying and harassment are senior doctors. And that's a fact we can't hide from. Now, measuring it is one thing. Doing something about it is another. And I alluded to this golden power that I'll eventually inherit when I get to the top of the hierarchy. And it's true, which means that it's hard to shift those people at the top. But there are lots of cool programs. You know, the hospital I'm working at at the moment has a program called the Ethos Program where you can anonymously flag something crappy that you saw, an interaction with a colleague, a direction from a boss, you know, something you're worried about in a student you're supervising. But you can also flag good stuff you see, you know, excellent team meetings, a pat on the back from a senior you know, a really good feedback session handled well or a difficult conversation done well. And what we're finding is, again, it's peer-to-peer, right? Because as you alluded to, doctors like listening to other doctors. <laughs> so when they get a tap on the shoulder from another doctor and they're like, look, I think we might need to talk about, you know, how you run ward rounds. It actually is shown to create great change. Now, what's funny about this, Michelle, and you'll be so frustrated given all your background, is that corporations have been doing this for decades but healthcare is so late to the game there's loads and loads of organizational psychology and teaching theory that we can use right it's all there we just have to want to employ it Mm. we need it to be better because this whole kind of loop you talked i don't know if it was in your book or whether i'd seen you talk about this in another you write lots of articles and stuff as well you're a busy man (laughs) it was around the statistic of those that you know that are leaving the profession you know that's an issue because we're like we already don't have enough people 
cancer care and especially as an ageing population. And the outset we should have said right at the start is we are bloody lucky to live in this country. I mean, we have an amazing healthcare, you know, system and, you know, what you and I are talking about is probably pretty minor compared to lots of other countries deal with. I mean, I think that needs to be said, but it can be so much better, you know, and we should be better, you know, because we have the resources, the tools, the technology, the funding, all the things. So for me, the frustrating part is you've got all those elements that you've got to overcome around, you know, passing the medical exam to get in, to be accepted, you know, all the hurdles. And then you go through so many years. And I think, I don't know what the statistics are about, you know, when people leave at particular points, but it's so much for them in the, whether it's the bullying, whether it's mental health is such a, you know, huge growing challenge, you know, in the medical fraternity as well. Just what are your thoughts there? Because this stuff has to change because it's just, as I say, the cycle, it's just going to get worse if we don't, fix this in order to make a the workplace a nicer environment for you know our training doctors to come through and hopefully survive and then look after us all a hundred percent and i think you've hit on a huge things which would be a whole other episode but the thing that's changed is that both patients and people who provide care are no longer willing to put up with the status quo and that's a big difference now when you talk about the doctor pipeline there's probably multiple years of study before you sit the first exam. You come straight out of high school or you do another degree. Then you've got the degree, which is four to six years, very intense. Then you've got all the postgraduate training, somewhere between seven and 12, 13, 14 years, depending on your specialty. Usually people never left, but that's changed. And I actually think the pandemic's driven a lot of that change. People have had to sit back and think about, what, what am I in this for? What do I want to do? And I actually think what's emerging is a conflict between what we're training people to do and what the actual job is. And we're seeing that we are going to see that explode with technology. So AI and chat GPT, and it started really with the internet and the democratization of knowledge. We are no longer the guardians of all that is known. And that used to be our job. Our, our job used to be, don't worry, I've done the 15 years of reading. I've done it for you. This is what has to happen. And that's not the case anymore. People can go and get information from other sources and they can hear from other voices, which they traditionally haven't, right? So we're just one piece now of the information puzzle, which makes our job even more important. It's even more important that we nail the connection because high quality information plus a trusting human connection has always been the key to healing. But what we've done in the back half of the last century was just focus on the information at the expense of the humanity, at the expense of the healing side of things. And I hope that technology, and it's the paradox, I hope that technology allows us to come back. Now, the, the training survey I alluded to before showed that one in five junior doctors are thinking of leaving. That's extraordinary. When you think about not only the time, but the money that they've sunk into the career. And on conferences, when I go and talk now, I'm increasingly getting junior doctors two, three, four, five years out, come up to me and say, I've left, I'm out. And if we go back to what I first spoke about, Michelle, I think we're choosing people with a particular skill set that have an idea of what medicine is, but don't know what the actual job involves. And we have to align that in a better way. And the way to align it is just like you've said, create more harmonious places for people to work in where they enjoy the work not just where they're enduring the work, 
in order to reach that prize at the end of the tunnel. One where patients derive as much purpose and satisfaction as we do. One where you arrive with purpose and it's rewarded. Being a kind doctor is as prestigious as publishing 300 papers, right? I would love to see these kinds of things elevated. And I think that's the key to holding on to people because the people we're losing, I fear, are the ones that want to practice medicine a certain way, but the system just won't allow them or reward them to. Mm, There was another quote that you said, patients don't just need doctors good at diagnosis. They need empathic and compassionate doctors willing to talk, listen, and advocate for them. I think that's an interesting one around the advocacy piece. And that's where after having a really bad experience with a negligent doctor, I found two doctors that were incredible. You know, the gynecologist that then, you know, advocated for me so much that he pulled out all favours to get me emergency surgery like the next morning, got the best oncologist and he was amazing. And then they looked after me after that. But that was, you know, nine months before that, I'd had such a bad experience. And why I wrote the book around taking your health and well-being in your own hands, because we were handing over that power, was an observation that I was seeing. If anyone listening is finding their doctor challenging, you know, either not listening or explaining things properly, what would you suggest they do? (laughs) Tell them. Now, I know that's really easy to say, and can I tell you, honestly, when I'm a patient, I don't always give feedback because I'm also scared. What is that? We're scared. It's white coat syndrome, I know it, but why are you scared of that? That doesn't make sense to me. Because vulnerability is vulnerability. Illness is illness. There's a lot of theatre in medicine, right? Like, I put on a white gown, I take off all my clothes, I stick on a barcode, I lay in a bed. The doctor's nicely dressed. I have no idea where they are. They rock up at a time of their choosing. They seem busy. They deflect other things to other people. There's a lot of stuff that's built into the system to reinforce the power difference. They often don't even say hello, do they? They don't introduce themselves. Yeah. Often, often they don't. I, I would say tell them and I would say have someone with you when you do that or have someone that is a bit more assertive and a bit more confident and and has less to lose, have a crack at it for you. You know, that might be a letter if you don't want to say it, uh, handed in at reception. It might be some carefully noted observations at the next consultation that you've written down. It might be asking the doctor, you know, I've got something I'm unhappy about. Can I talk to you about it? And and playing it that way. It, It might mean moving doctors. And I know that's not always an easy thing to do. I say that from the privilege of a metro setting, but maybe it's moving doctors or consulting a doctor online somewhere. You know, COVID's done amazing things for telehealth and the ability for doctors to consult across geography. Contacting the patient advocacy groups, you know, they've got, they're really good at this stuff because they know the issues. There's bowel cancer groups, there's MS groups, there's diabetes groups, there's all kinds of patient groups. It's getting strategies off patient groups, so jumping onto blogs and online platforms where patients talk to each other and getting tips on what might need to be done differently or how you might approach the doctor that has a certain opinion. Again, it comes down to access of information, (laughs) but it's still got to be delivered to a human in front of you, and that's the tricky bit, right? That's the psychology. And I, I always think strength in numbers. When I was thinking I needed to have a tricky conversation, I took my mum and my girlfriend and my wife to consults because I know I'm not myself in there. 
something changes in me and I'm aware of that, but other people can pick up the baton and, and, and wield that for you. So lovely to hear you say that, Ben. I think having gone through what you've gone through and but and also a male to, you know, I found I had a female doctor that was incredibly condescending and she actually called me a hypochondriac. And I was like, really? Six months later, I'm having massive life-saving surgery. And I'm a tough, strong woman. I couldn't say it. I couldn't stand up to her, even though I knew it was wrong. And I kept going back to her. And I was like, how dumb was I? Because of that, you know, loyalty I grew up with having the family doctor, you know, and you go to the same doctor because they've got your history. And I think this probably leads into a question I had for you around the future, the things that I don't understand around the technology that exists and why, you know, we've got all that technology and, and you say communication is one of the biggest issues, you know, complaints people have. We can capture information easily. We can retain it, data. You know, we've got data on bloody everything. And when you go into hospital, they have everything on you. And yet we still stuff things up and we still can't communicate with patients as well. With AI coming in and, you know, I've just come from a massive conference where AI, all that was talked about in tech and stuff in the medical area. And also some friends of mine have started a um, patient experience agency. So I know that this stuff is moving and all the legislation that's coming in in terms of actually the expectations on doctors and their practices. So stuff is changing, we, we know that, but what's your take on how AI can hopefully be positive in terms of taking all the crap or the admin or the stuff or whatever in order to enable our doctors to be more empathetic and to have more humanity? Because we're going to need that, right, in terms of that balance, I'd imagine. You're probably the best person, actually. I should flip that question and just ask you, given that you've just been at the conference. But my, i tell you what my, my worry is. My worry is that the technology becomes really sophisticated and the interface requires a degree of skill to navigate it that means we select for those skills and we just reinforce that technical component of doctoring and it's almost like the other stuff, you know, the doctor's even more off the hook for having to be the kind of physician that we've talked about today. You know, when electronic medical records came in, which are fantastic, you know, doctors spent a lot of time looking at computers, even when a person was in the room. And ward rounds became huddling around a mobile laptop and not the patient. There's a risk that the technology gets really fancy and has lots of bells and whistles, and it continues to take over the doctor-patient relationship. Unless we elevate patients... The reason that the computer wins is because the doctor and it speak the same language and it's been designed for doctors to interpret. So it's stuff they really trust. It's data they use to make decisions. Sometimes the stuff coming out of the patients they see is almost noise. You know, it's distracting from the core job <laughs> and that's at risk if we just make the technology side even more attuned to the needs of the doctor without actually factoring in how it can best serve patients. The other problem with all this tech is that it's mostly, you know, white guys coding it and designing it. We already have groups in society that have crappy health outcomes because of the bias that we've built into healthcare. So that's one of the risks. The, the benefit is that we actually, we let patients interact with the AI 
and it collects awesome things about them that they co-present or they incorporate into their stories when they sit down with the doctor. And the doctor is then trained to value both forms of evidence equally. That would be amazing because then it means a lot of the, the, the work and the thinking is done and the doctor can then get about negotiating or brokering the treatment, which is what they should be doing. Sounds like there's a lot of things to change and you are doing amazing work in this space as we know already. So thank you for that. On behalf of all of us, I know you are changing from within. But if you could move the dial on just one thing, like if there's one thing that you just go, this is, if I had to focus on one thing and I could only pick one to change that I really want, you know, moved, what would it be? It's not the thing that I think would have the most amount of change, but it's the thing I think would be easiest and it would be to bring patients in to medical school, call them professors, let them do lectures, and then examine what they say. Because med students tend to only learn what's on the exam, and there's a lot to learn, so they have to be brutal. The patient stuff is not there, and when it's there, it's not examined. And it's the way to get them to listen until we can do the really big thing, which is reselect who we let in. Until we can do that, we should be putting patients into medical school as professors and making their content as important as the oncologist and the neurologist and the pathologist. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I remember years ago, I did some work for the ANSGOG and they asked me to speak with a group of people, mostly were the medical profession about my experience and from a patient aspect. And this was probably about 10 years ago. And it was lovely that they actually even took the time and wanted to know about that experience, you know, from the patient side and what I'd been through. You know, talking about this is because I don't want anyone else to go through that, you know, and how we can, you know, give people the permission, I guess, and the power to ask for a second opinion, to go and see someone else, to say, I'm sorry, I don't think that's the right treatment for me. What else can you come up with, you know? And I mean, I guess even again, recently I've had back surgery and the first um, person I went to, a neurosurgeon of which, and I said to him, what can I do? I don't want to have surgery. What are all the other options I can do? And he just looked at me and said, well, you don't have an option. You have to have surgery. And I was like, no, that's not what I said. Let's try again. (laughs) (laughs) And the same thing about his, you know, his response to medication. He just, you know, didn't ask me a single question around if I'd had any history with, you know, oxy or any, you know, tendencies to be addictive, just wrote me a script for endone. And I was like, I'm pretty sure there's lots of issues with this drug. Especially in back pain. Yeah. So hence I went to another doctor, but I, because of what I've gone through and the journey and stuff, then I feel empowered to do that. And I have no issue these days, but many people do. They feel disloyal or they think that the doctor may not see them again or, you know, if they go to someone else. And I guess that's a challenge, right? Mm, it is a challenge and it's been reinforced by us, you know, like you, doctors can get very dismissive very quickly because they have sacrificed a lot. And the problem is if, if you're not practicing with purpose or you're not supplementing the other parts of their world, they do get quite put off when their skill set is threatened or their ego is damaged because I don't know if they're in it for the right reasons and they're practicing for the right reasons. And I think we've done that, you know, we've created that culture where, you know, well, well if you don't if, if you don't want surgery, I've got nothing for you. Off you go. What you've read's rubbish. Or forget everything else everyone has ever told you. Here, here's what's going on in your back. Like we've done that. We cultivate that because we can be quite precious 
about our knowledge. And that's because we, we have a role to play in holding on to the power. And this is where the conversation always ends up. And it's really awkward. People who have power to lose <laughs> resist, <laughs> you know, in any part of society. But we do, we do have to work at that. And I think the next generation coming through, both of doctors and patients, are going to force a recalibration of that thinking. So, if any of those senior doctors that you have worked with, maybe not now, but if you have worked in the past, were listening to this, what are the messages you'd like them to really hear today about some stuff that they could change or be better at? I tend to go with, and it frustrates me, is don't wait to get sick to get it. You know, my book sits on a shelf in a bookstore next to lots of other memoirs by doctors who did it the other way around. So, they got sick after becoming a doctor, right? That one of the most famous is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, you know, the American surgeon who then got cancer. Henry Marsh, the famous neurosurgeon, has got one out at the moment about having prostate cancer. Doctors gobble this stuff up because it's like, oh, I realized 30 years of medicine, it sucks to be sick. And I think you don't have to have family members that get sick or be sick yourself to empathize with the person in front of you. You just have to want to empathize with the person in front of you. And you don't need to be scared of it because all the other healing and caring professions are doing it and they're doing it better. And the way to reassert your power and your importance into that person's life is to actually connect with them on a level above and beyond your own knowledge. Because medicine has a problem and that is people are looking elsewhere for answers and they'll continue to do that. They'll continue to use goop and other sources instead of us, if we keep treating them like crap and we keep treating them like they're not important or smart enough to be a part of the conversation. Dr. Ben Bravery, you have certainly earned that title and it has been an absolute delight to chat to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favor? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com. Thank you.